Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am excited to welcome Juan Thomas, who currently serves as the vice chair of the civil rights and social justice section of the American Bar Association. He is of counsel to Quinteros, Prieto, Wood and Boyer, and the founder of the Thomas Law Group. He served as the president of the National Bar Association for its 2017-2018 term, where he helped establish its first LGBTQ lawyers division, worked with Silicon Valley to promote more diversity and inclusion in the technology industry, and co-founded the National Commission for Voter Justice to address voter suppression and advance electoral reform and civic engagement. He also serves on the Executive Council of the National Conference of Bar Presidents, a national association whose mission is to provide high quality programming and leadership development training for members of the legal community. Juan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Christine. It's very nice to be here. Christine, the um, Civil Rights Social Justice Section was founded in 1966 at the ABA's annual meeting. Some of the charter members of our founding were Supreme Court Justice William Brennan, um, future chairs Admiral Mikva, who went on to be a congressman and also White House counsel to President Clinton, and Father Robert Drynan. The original name was Individual Rights and Responsibility. But over the 50 years of our existence, now plus 50 years, the work and the role of our section has expanded. We grew beyond just individual rights and responsibilities to talk more about gender equity, the death penalty, discrimination based upon sexual orientation, responses to the health epidemic and bioethical concerns, free speech and free expression. All of those issues became more and more part of the work of the section. And we also were active in founding several projects and entities within the ABA. So we helped found the Center for Human Rights, the Death Penalty Due Process Review Project, the Death Penalty Representation Project, the AIDS Coordinating Committee, and the ABA Commission on Homelessness and Poverty. Those are just some of the work, some of the work of the section. And so in 19, I'm sorry, 2015, um, under the chair of Mark Strickland, I'm, I'm sorry, Strick, I'm sorry, Mark Strickman, he um, led the effort to change our name to, or to expand our name to civil rights and social justice. So now we are the ABA section of civil rights and social justice. And we consider ourselves, and many people call us the conscious and the consciousness of the ABA and the legal profession. Well, and during the course of this, we'll talk about some of the work that the section does as well as you and I chatted about in our- I'm sorry, um, that chair's name was Mark Schickman. Schickman, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yes. I'm sorry. Mark will kill me if I messed up his name. It's a a lot to get through. So no no worries at all. Um, So I want to, you know, for each of these and our audience, uh, at any time they have questions, please feel free to put it in uh, the chat on Facebook. Um, We uh, are going to have what for many people may be a little bit of a hard conversation. Um, and uh, I am getting more and more comfortable with my uncomfortableness um, <laughs> in, in these things. Um, and certainly, so by all means, if I say something uh, wrong or inappropriate, please correct me um, and uh, we'll go forward with this chat. So you and I mentioned that one of the challenges we have with these conversations is that a lot of people approach this from different angles, different perspectives. Um, And so I thought it might be helpful for us to start with an understanding of when we talk about the equity gap from a racial perspective, 
What does that look like? Where are we and where are we trying to go? Well, I think it's important to first admit and acknowledge history and facts. You know, we live in a, in a country right now where we're having a debate around basic facts and not agreeing on what facts are. But if you have a true understanding and knowledge of American history, you have to understand that this country was founded on a lie. It was founded on a premise that white lives were more valuable than black lives. That was true in the law. It was put into our constitution when we labeled enslaved Africans three-fifths of a person. It was also done not only between black and white, it was also based upon gender. Women could not vote, but men with property could. And when our founding fathers wrote, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they did not mean me, I probably would have been a slave, and they, would, and they didn't mean you, Kristen, um, as a white female. And so we have what Eddie Glaude, the professor at Princeton University calls the value gap, where we value white lives more than black lives. We have what he also calls the lie. And so much of our social structure in law, in our body politic, in our culture, works to reinforce these lies. The lie that blacks are inferior to whites the lie that we are not as smart, not as capable, not as intelligent. And if we can't own that truth and own that reality, it's hard to have these conversations. And that's not to make anyone uncomfortable or to offend anyone, but it's just the truth of our historical legacy of systemic racism and oppression in this country. And quite candidly, we've only been a true democracy in the last 55 years. You know, um, it was not until 1964 and 65 that the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act that these laws put in place a true statutory implication of our democracy. Prior to that, we were living under a Jim Crow system or right out slavery, you know, systematic slavery. So we have to start there with that truth and that reality. And that um, certainly, I would say, since last summer has become a starting point that people are recognizing more often um, or hopefully at a minimum acknowledging that um, uh, all of our starting points are and have been codified really at different places. Um, and so um, I want to talk a little bit about how does the law factor in here? So it is both, it is a tool and it has been a tool that has been used to foster these ideas that you have, you know, and this, this lack of reality, I guess, basis. Um, and it is also a tool and probably the best tool we have for changing this. Um, so how, how do we, or how is, you know, I don't know if this is something the section itself is looking at, um, or if it is, I have to imagine it's more than individual practitioners, a collection yeah. of practitioners. Um, how, how are you looking at the law as a way to correct some of these or to advance and close this equity gap? Well, as the conscience of the ABA and of our legal profession more broadly, the, our section works um, strategically and intentionally to promote and support um, ABA resolutions and policies that really foster diversity and inclusion and equity. And so over the last 55 plus years, we've been doing that work on a variety of different levels, not only with race, gender, sexual orientation, healthcare disparities, disability rights, um, science and technology. We've worked on all of those issues um, for now 50 plus years. Over the last few years though, we've had a particular focus on race. Our chair two years ago was Will Schooley, whose focus that year was on being black in America. And we talked a lot about what that meant. 
This was before the pandemic. This was before George Floyd. Um, but Will had the vision based upon his experiences as a progressive white person and as a friend to the broader community of, of African-Americans to bring this, this issue to uh, the forefront of the section. Um, we've also sponsored um, resolutions around uh, eliminating qualified immunity, police reform that have been adopted by the ABA House of Delegates just this past summer during our virtual um, annual meeting. And so um, we're continuing that work this year under our current chair, Angela Scott, where she's trying to create a, um, a, 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 a kind of a clearinghouse, if you will, of information and resources for civil rights organizations to access from our um, clearinghouse. She's also working to create a podcast and a fellowship program to continue to educate um, our, our members and other lawyers across the country and also lay people about the important issues that face um, this issue from a, from a structural perspective of the law. Um, I will say one thing about the law. When we talk about systemic racism, we're often talking about racism as a structure. And Robin DiAngelo in her book, White Fragility, talks about racism as a structure and a system. And it's not just individual you know, indiscretions that someone may do to another person, but it was put in the law. The whole Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson was rooted in separate but not equal. Mm -hmm. That court said that a black man has no rights and a white man has to respect or endure. That was a Supreme Court decision. There were black codes where police officers could go out and round up former slaves and arrest them for, quote, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, put them in jail, prosecute them, have them be called felons, and then put them back on plantations to be slave workers. I could go on and on by the examples of how the law has been used not only to enslave a people of color, but then also used to deny people access to the right to vote, the right to housing, the right to health care. And those disparities still exist today because even though the law has changed in large part, practices and systems have not changed. There's a mindset that we're wrestling with that is rooted in the culture and the ethos of our country that goes way beyond a particular statute or case law, but it's how people are socialized and raised to think about race and gender in this country. And so then how do we, or sort of a two-part question, how do we use the law to, to close this gap? Do, or, and maybe the starting question is, do you think, granted there will be some holes here, but do you think by and large, the laws exist in a way that if they were enforced as they were meant to be enforced, that would help close the gap? Or is it even at this point, we're still working on what should the law actually be in some of these areas? Right. So obviously we live in two Americas. Um, the way we enforce the law as, as applies to whites and blacks are very different. The same week a white police officer was not indicted for shooting a black man in the back 17 times in Kenosha, Wisconsin, we saw thousands of white people march on Capitol Hill and attack our members of Congress. Every black person in America knows that if Black Lives Matter had marched on Capitol Hill to protest anything, there would have been massive bloodshed in the streets. We know that the law is not applied equally in this country and we live in two Americas. And that is a reality that is again, rooted in the psyche of those who are in positions of authority and power. And so we can change the law, but if we don't change practice and mindset, the law becomes void because 
we're not gonna apply the law equally and fairly. And so we see this across the board in police brutality cases and the need for police reform. We see it in housing. I heard a statistic just this morning that 40% of the homeless in this country are African-American, even though we only make up 14% of the population. That's public policy. This pandemic that we are all living through has highlighted and spotlighted the vast disparities between our two Americas in terms of jobs, housing, unemployment, health insurance, health care. So many African-Americans don't have the luxury like you and I do to work from home. I've got family members that they cannot work from home. That's not the nature of their job. Mm-hmm. And so that continues to plague our country. Again, the historical legacy. And if I could also say, you have not asked this question, but I'll put it out there. <clears throat> the resistance to change. Here's the sad reality about American history. White America has never accepted and embraced the changing of America. After the Civil War, there was a revolt from white America. We called it the Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. After the Civil Rights Movement, what did Lyndon Johnson say about white Democrats? He said they lost them for a generation. What did they do? They became Republicans. What, What happened after Barack Obama became president? We had the rise of the Tea Party. And when he left office, here's where we are now. And so there's a community of white America, quite candidly, and this goes back to my brother, Eddie Glaude's book, um, To Begin, uh, Begin Again, where he says, there's a, there's a commitment among some whites to maintain America's whiteness over its democracy. And I think that's what we're wrestling with right now. The wrestling with make America great again is not rooted in a call for democracy. It's rooted in a, in a call to preserve whiteness. And America is changing to be more um, a people of color. And that's fearful and frightening for some people. And I don't, I don't mean to let people off the hook with the question I'm about to ask, but it, it's a curiosity for me is that with every progression um, from a racial equity perspective. And then as you just highlighted some of the inevitable backslide, um, are we seeing that in a total thing, we are slightly further down the road than we were? So I guess the question is, is it for every two steps forward, we take two steps back or is it maybe we move three steps forward, but one step back and then we move four steps forward, but two steps back. So I'm curious as to, are we, are we at least traveling in a direction towards closing equity? Or at this point, do you feel like we're really back at the starting point again? So let me um, say this as someone who is, who, who's, who's living this like you are in the moment. Um, I, like many African-Americans, made the mistake of thinking that Barack Obama's election was a movement or a moment where we were truly making racial progress. I remember the day he was elected. Um, and I, I say this a bit, a bit tongue in cheek, but it was true. It was like black men's day in America. And so all of my African-American male friends, we were calling each other, texting each other, you know, high-fiving each other, um, so excited and happy that a black man had been elected president. We thought we'd made some significant progress and gains. Um, and we remember, we, we, we never talk about this anymore, but remember that word, that term, post-racial society? I do remember that term. Remember yes. that? Mm-hmm. You know, you never hear that anymore. And so here's what I learned from Obama to now the end of Trump and to Biden. Our democracy is not a static notion. It is a participatory engagement of people of goodwill and good faith moving us forward to live out America's creed to be a more perfect union. 
And you can't sit on your laurels. You can't rest. You can't hope people will do the right thing. And so what a lot of us got lulled into being during the Obama era was that everything was all right. We're all, we're, we're all good. We're all doing well. We're all making progress. But then Trayvon Martin happened. Then Tamir Rice happened. Then Sandra Bland happened. Then Henry Louis Gates got arrested at his house. Mm -hmm. Then Michelle Obama was criticized for showing her shoulders. And Barack Obama was criticized for wearing a tan suit. Yeah, suit. Yep. And slowly America, Black America began to realize, wait a minute, things have not really gotten better or changed. And so I will say, yes, we've made progress, but if we are students of history, we have to understand there has always been intentional, systematic, structural resistance to the progress of Black people and people of color. I did not understand its implication until later, but when I heard that the day Barack Obama was inaugurated his, for his first term, there was a group of Republican members of Congress who met that day to plot that he would be a one-term president. The soon-to-be Senate Minority Leader said it on the Senate floor. His primary goal was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. Mm -hmm. The resistance is real, it's intentional. And so the only way you defeat this intentionality is that, to paraphrase my college classmate and brother, soon to be Senator Raphael Warnock, he said that we, that we oftentimes we lose these fights on the edges because of our apathy and lack of engagement. And so those of us who have a mindset of progressive public policy, who want racial equality, who wanna live in a community where we live in a more perfect union of harmony and common ground, we can't rest on our laurels. This is a fight. We're in a fight. What we saw last week in Washington is a reflection that this is going to be a long-term battle. And what I hope for, and what gives me hope, is that there's a younger generation of whites and blacks that don't have the scars of their grandparents and their parents. There's a generation of young people today that were born around the time of 9-11. Of mm -hmm. They're 20 years old now. They have no history of Michael Jordan. They have no knowledge of Bill Clinton. They weren't around for Ronald Reagan. They weren't around for Richard Nixon. Those are all historical figures for them. And they're not, and they came of age under an African-American president. And I'm hoping that that plus the other progressive things that have happened in our country where you see more people of color on TV as news anchors, as actors and other celebrities that just look normal, that those people will help elevate the conversation around what it means to be in a truly um, racial, a community of racial equity and inclusion. Okay, and that makes sense to me. I also want to talk a little bit because you mentioned something earlier about the recommendations that the section makes to the House of Delegates and the approval of, of those by the House of Delegates. What impact does that have? So once, once the House of Delegates, and again, just because most of our audience are not lawyers, and so their right, experience right. with the ABA, not, not uh, top of mind, what, what does that mean? Like what, does, what happens once the House of Delegates says, yep, we're adopting this policy, um, what does that change? So what we try to do is share that information with public policymakers as, 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 a, as a resource. The ABA is the largest voice of lawyers in America. And we try to use that voice to influence public policy in terms of what we believe is just and equitable um, for the law and the legal profession. And we try to be a, 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 an information center, if you will. So 
public policy experts and other public policy makers can see us as a vehicle to receive information, to get information, and to have knowledgeable information around facts, impact, and kind of that um, legal research, if you will, around public policy. We also um, try to um, vet judicial candidates to make sure they are you know, deemed qualified. And so we spend a lot of time uh, doing that work as well. And so we try to be the voice of the lawyer um, and truly the, and the rule of law um, for our uh, public policy makers. You have mentioned a number of topics this racial equity gap has shown up. So we've talked a little bit about health and healthcare. We've talked obviously about employment and housing at high levels, admittedly all of these conversations, public office. Um, one of the questions I also had was regarding the judiciary itself um, and the importance, um, I think I wanna start with, what is the importance of racial, I'm not sure we're anywhere near equity, so let's at least go with racial diversity um, in the judiciary. Um, let's let's start with that conversation. What what would change by having a judiciary that looks more representative of what the American population actually looks like? So I think the first thing to point out there is that and this is an issue that those on the right try to argue to argue against diversity. They argue that judges, and rightfully so, should be impartial. You know, that justice is blind. And so the race and gender of a judge should not matter. The challenge around that argument, where that argument falls hollow and falls on deaf ears, is often because they use the white male standard as normative. And so how white men see the world is how everyone should see the world. That's their value system around fair and impartial. Um, but we know that different races, different gender, different gender can equally be fair and balanced, but have a different perspective. And so judges have the ability to make, to, to make rulings and to interpret the law and impose sanctions and set standards in the courtroom. How they see the law, how they approach the law, how they approach society will often be impacted by their diversity. And so how you implement these public, poli public policy in the law is often impacted by diversity issues. And so the lack of diversity means that there are judges that are as sensitive to cultural norms or gender norms as other judges. Um, and so it has a, a, great, a great impact. And the reason why this is a disingenuous argument on the right is because if you look at the current president's judicial appointments, 98% of them have been white, mostly white men. And so why is that? They argue, they understand that that point of view is valuable to them. And that's why they make those appointments. And so I think it's important that we have a very diverse bench, a bench that is sensitive to cultural norms and other issues that impact our society. Um, and th that, that lack of diversity means that we will interpret laws very differently based upon our lived experiences. Well, and this, this leads me to a little bit of our prep conversation as well, when you and I were talking about Justice Jackson's background and the fact that he ended up being appointed to the Supreme Court without graduating from college um, and without technically graduating from law school. He completed, uh, he did one year of, of courses in law school and, and, and completed, received a certificate. Um, partially because he was too young to technically graduate at that time. Um, but also, you know, that just, he was trying to move as fast as he could. Um, and whether or not an African-American could become a Supreme Court justice without a law degree. Um, and, and, and- The answer is hell no. 
I, I feel the same way about a woman. I feel as right. if, you know, no woman would have been appointed without a law degree as well. But, 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 but Kristen, that, that question speaks to the culture of white supremacy and white privilege, particularly for, for white men. We live in a country that has always accommodated the advancement of white men. It was rooted in slavery. Rich white men were slave owners. Poor white men were the overseers. It was true in our economy after Reconstruction. The whole labor movement was built around protecting workers' rights for white men. I'm a big supporter of labor, but I note the historical fact that these labor unions denied membership to black people. And so while they're fighting for their own rights, they weren't including people of color in the union. After World War II, the GI Bill, black soldiers were denied access to the GI Bill, mm -hmm. but white soldiers were. These are historical realities. And so as brilliant as, brilliant as Justice Jackson was, he was the beneficiary of white privilege and white supremacy. There's no way under the sun an African-American would be appointed to the Supreme Court without a law degree. Would never happen, not in 2021 America. But what I also wanna underscore about white privilege and white supremacy is the pressure it puts on black people. In the black community, we talk about black excellence and having to be twice as good to get half as far. That puts a lot of pressure on black professionals and black people more uh, broadly. And a lot of us have worked with what I call with all due respect, average white people. There's a presumption when a white person has a job that they're qualified and that they're talented. That presumption is a lie because oftentimes white people get their opportunities by white affirmative action. You know what we call that in America? The good old boy system. Your dad knows somebody. Your uncle knows somebody. Your mom used to go to school with the CEO's um, mother and you've been family friends for years and now, Kristen, you need a job. And they just give you an opportunity because we love your family. They don't ask your qualifications. They don't ask to see your resume, but you're just a good person. But when we talk about hiring black people, white people become very objective all of a sudden. We have standards now. We wanna see your resume. What's your experience? What's your background? What have you done? And that is often, again, tying back into systemic racism, the system and the structure. Here's the system. It's embodied in our psyche. And the, the evidence of it is not only the pressure for blacks to be excellent, and we see it from Barack Obama on down, but we also see it in white people's willingness to give themselves a second chance. White people will hire and promote other white people who have screwed up. I call to the stand Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former lawyer. He's written a book and every week I see him on MSNBC. Here you have a white man who has disgraced himself, but our corporate media community has given him a platform for his voice to be heard. Please name the African-American who has fallen from grace, who white America and mainstream America has embraced and welcomed back. I call to the stand my second witness, former football player, Michael Vick. He went to jail for killing dogs mm -hmm. and white America was outraged. Why isn't white America outraged by the killing of black men who are unarmed disproportionately? Why isn't white America outraged 
by what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Do you care more about dogs than you do black people? Is that the implication that we should make? And so this equity gap, this mindset gap uh, is rooted in how we think about it, how we value each other. Barack Obama, and I say this with all due respect to the former president who I had a chance to know when he was in Illinois, when he was a state senator. Um, he was what black America calls the perfect Negro, perfect. He was clean and articulate. That's Joe, Joe Biden said that about him. He was handsome. He was light-skinned. He had a beautiful wife and beautiful daughter. He went to Harvard, went to Columbia undergrad. Not only did he go to Harvard, he was the president of Harvard's Law Review. Mm -hmm. He had no public scandal. White America thought, oh my goodness, why can't the rest of you be more like him? <laughs> Plus he was half white. Hmm. Interesting, okay. Right, and so he becomes president. Here's my point. You get, I'm not even gonna compare him to the current president because that's just completely absurd. You give Barack Obama, Bill Clinton or George Bush's resume and ask yourself, could he have been elected president? Could he have been like a president if he was known to have been unfaithful to his wife on multiple times? Could he have been elected president if he was an average student who grew up when he was, when he, when he, I'm sorry, became an adult when he, when he turned about 40 and bragged about it? Dick Cheney was kicked out of school multiple times, became vice president. Should we even, like I said, let's not even go there with the current yep. guy in the White House, because we know Obama couldn't do even half of that. But here's my point. If we're gonna achieve racial equity, we have to allow average black people who don't go to Harvard, who don't go to Yale, who may have some personal problems, who may have some financial problems, who may have a background, who may have screwed up in life to be successful. Okay. We as black America cannot continue to live under this guise of we have to be perfect while our white peers can be average and mediocre. That's a real problem that goes to the system of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. That's not law, that's our mindset. And in all fairness, black people, we do this to each other as well. We are much more forgiving of our white colleagues than we are our black colleagues. And so the psyche of racism, just like sexism has an impact on how women see each other, yep. racism has an impact on how black people also see and interact with each other. Interesting. All right. I want to dig in a little bit on some of some of the challenges in the law at the moment, and we have received some questions from our audience as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna start with a question from Tom. And his question is, what suggestions do you have for changes to the qualified immunity doctrine regarding police officers as a way to address some of these challenges? Well, so the issue there becomes very interesting because a lot of this has to be done on the, on the state level, you know, through state, legislatures, local government. Um, and the question becomes, how do you eliminate qualified immunity um, without eliminating people's desire to become police officers and be properly trained to do that work? Hmm. Okay. And so there's a real challenge around whether or not if we eliminate qualified immunity, will people risk their livelihood to do this work. And we need good police officers. And so I recently was reading an article about how qualified immunity may not need, may not work if we're gonna hold the police officer personally responsible, but perhaps maybe the local government or the county. It may need to be some kind of shared responsibility. Hmm. So I think that's one issue around public policy and qualified immunity that we need to look at very carefully um, because if we start losing, um, if, we, if, if that profession is no longer attractive 
because people are afraid of losing their livelihood, uh, not, not, not to mention their life, then we're gonna have a real challenge because here's the, 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 the myth around those who argue, you know, the defund police conversation. Mm-hmm. And that term is controversial and people, have, you know, people don't understand what it means or they misinterpret it intentionally. Black America, brown America, we want good police officers too. We want to live in safe neighborhoods also. Nobody wants to defund the police where they don't exist. We want to reimagine policing and how it exists. I want to live in a neighborhood where if I see a police officer driving down my block, I don't get afraid. I'm not, I'm not frightened. I want to live in a neighborhood where if I'm talking to you, Christian, I'm a black man, you're a white woman, that an officer is not going to walk up to you and ask if you're okay because you're seen with a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want good policing. And so qualified immunity is, is, is an issue that I think really has to be kind of drilled down on a local and state level to protect communities' rights and, and their interests while also protecting police officers who do good work, but also punish the bad ones and may tie those bad ones back to the um, city and the state, city and the county they work for. Got it. Okay. Another thing that has been in the news a lot recently is the potential change to the disparate impact um, uh, portion of the Civil Rights Act. I'm not sure I'm phrasing that as elegantly as I could. Uh, (laughs) Yes, thank you. Um, And the DOJ has asked for permission to no longer enforce Title VI, so this this, um, part of the Civil Rights Act, in cases where the practice or policy had the, quote, disparate impact on a minority or another group. Um, Is this something that the CRSJ is taking a look at? Um, How, as as we had this conversation of, it's not just the laws themselves, it's how they are enforced. So um, how do we we work through this challenge? Well, candidly, um, I think elections have consequences. And because of the election of November 3rd of last year, you're going to see a a changing of the guard at DOJ. And I can tell you, because I've worked with um, Kristen Clark from the Lawyers Committee, who's now going to be the um, Deputy AG for Civil Rights, um, Sanjay uh, um, Vanita Gupta, who's going to be one of the the associate, I think, number three in line at DOJ, and of course, Merrick Garland. they are not going to um, perpetuate and continue that public policy. Um, They will enforce um, Title VI. I have every confidence in them that um, they are going to not only um, enforce Title VI, they're also gonna call for the the, um, implementation of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that's sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk to fix um, um, that section of the Voting Rights Act that eliminated um, the uh, evaluation of voting changes um, across the country. And so um, I see that as um, an issue that will soon be rectified as of January 21st. Is this something that we need to take a look at though as to clearly this shows this is a vulnerable aspect of the law. Um, And I think most... (laughs) Yeah, I, I I think that this is um, this has shown that this is a vulnerable ax, a, aspect of this particular law, and so yeah. sh- are there ways? I you know one of our great hallmarks is the fact that our, our laws are changeable, um, and that that's that's how we keep order is through our laws. But are there certain ones that we should look at making harder to change? Um, you know, is there are, are there or is that, you know, it, this is just something we have to live with and hope that society progresses in a way that makes not enforcing them in this way unseemly or unreasonable? That's a very interesting question because if you make certain laws harder to change, you are, an ed- you are ultimately going to have laws that you want to change that now you just made harder to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think the, 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 the strategic solution and the 
and, and, and the way you do this from a democracy perspective is you have to stay engaged in the process. I think it's important that we realize that elections have consequences on the local, state, and national level. Now, candidly, what needs to change is our political system. The money in politics, gerrymandering of districts, um, corporate dollars that fund super PACs, um, the way political parties manipulate the system. And I'm talking about both parties. And I'm saying this as an active member of the Democratic Party. And I've got my Democratic friends that don't like to hear me say this, but please don't think the Democratic Party does not love money too. They very much are tied to money. Um, that was, that's what needs to change, is that we live in a society, in a, in a democracy that so many people have lost faith in the system because the system doesn't change even when we elect people that we, that we say share our values because of how the system works and how the processes within the system work. And so when we live in a, in, in a community where the only race that really matters to you is your primary, and as long as you win your primary, you're gonna get reelected in the general election, that's gonna impact and affect your politics. There are Republicans, and I know you're not a political organization, but I'll just say this from an from a observer perspective. There are Republicans who did not vote to impeach the president yesterday because they don't want to be primaried. They're saying that privately to, their, to, the, to Democratic friends. And I have friends on Capitol Hill that have told me that they have said privately, look, if I go the wrong way on this, they're going to vote me out of office. And they're not talking about losing the general election to a Democrat. They're talking about a, a Republican primary challenge. And those things happen on the left also. And so I think if, really, if we're really going to change public policy to really be reflective of the people and to do what I and others are calling transformative and bold public policy in this moment, we have to also look at how we elect people to public office. And understand that money too often is the driving force behind who wins elections. Because I, you know, in terms of the representational style of democracy that we have, um, in theory, that's exactly what is supposed to happen. That if you vote the way you think you should vote and your district, your, your area or whatever does not agree with you, then yes, you probably will be voted out of office because your representation of their interests is not in line with, with their interests. Um, that completely leaves aside what their interests are. Um, and, you know, and, and the relative, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a, a conversation of what is good and what is bad about that. But, um, but I, at what point do we also need our representatives to vote in a way that they think is right versus a way that will keep them where they are. So there's a, there's a phrase that I've picked up from a very prominent um, TV newscaster where he says that politicians make decisions based upon a fear of consequences versus enlightenment or what's right. And I have to be honest and say that there are too many people in public office that make decisions and make choices on how to vote on fear of consequences. Will this cost me re-election? Will this cost me a committee assignment? Will the leadership of my party not support me next cycle? I wanna move up to the next level. Will I get the support of the party if I don't go along to get along? Mm -hmm. This is the reality that most people in public office will never admit to. And they'll be offended if you call them on that. And they often will become self-righteous and prideful and talk about things about, you know, they always vote for their community's interest and what's best for their people. And many of them do do that. That is very true. Many of them do. But I will tell you, as someone who's been a public official, 
someone who has run for, for high office, someone who has seen other people run for office. And I see the opportunism in public office and people that run for public office. There is a cynicism in the body politic that says this, most people aren't paying attention. Okay. And the state senator, the state rep, the congressman, the city council member, there's a part of their political philosophy that knows as long as people aren't paying attention, I can probably do what I want. Hmm. And that's exactly what they do. Because quite candidly, most people are not paying attention. Yeah. I compare it to... Um, sports. I'm a football, fantasy football fan. We were talking about football before we started and yep. go Bills for all of you out there and <laughs> you're part of New York this weekend, right? But seriously, there are people that are casual fans. They watch football on Sunday afternoon. The game may be on the background while they're talking to their friend or making Sunday dinner or doing whatever they do. There are some people that are even less casual than that. They're more like my wife. My wife, about three or four years ago, we were driving to a Super, a Super Bowl party. And on the way to the party, she asked me specifically, who's playing today? She had no clue. Now I watch football every Sunday. After church, I am glued to my TV on my fantasy football picks because I study the game. I study the process. I follow players. What's my point? If you are a casual political observer, you vote when it's time to vote for president. That's when you tune in. Every once in a while, if some attractive candidate that captures your imagination is running for public office, you will you know, tune into them. Barack Obama in 2004, US Senate race, right? Raphael Warnock, 2020, 21, Georgia. Mm -hmm. You know, some, some, some exciting new hope for the future. Um, I'll tune in for that. But most people aren't following day-to-day -day city council, state legislature, county-wide political engagement in those races. And those people in public office know that. And so they know how to manipulate the conversation and the airwaves and the news media. And quite frankly, and this is what's gonna be troubling for some people to hear, people in public office often are dishonest and they tell flat out lies and misinformation. That's true on both sides or they exaggerate facts because they know most people aren't gonna do the homework to find out the truth. And so what is, why were people marching last summer? Not only because black lives matter but because they were frustrated with a, a body politic that wasn't making any real change. And so you've got Democrats in cities across America who are friends with the police because the police union supported them in their election. And so they don't wanna change the collective bargaining agreement around police reform. And you have to get into the weeds of local politics to change that. And so, that's what's required. And so I hope in uh, this next um, decade, more people will be engaged in what I call the business of politics, the day-to-day -day, um, engagement on a civic level of what's going on on your city council, your county, state, and national level. We have a question somewhat related to this as well, it, although it goes back a little bit to the conversation we were having about representation in the judiciary. So Helene asked the question, do you think that there is a disparity between the number of US public defenders who end up being appointed to federal magistrates or federal judge positions versus the number of US attorneys? Um, so balancing which side of, of this that they're coming from. <laughs> Um, who were appointed to those. And does that, is that in your opinion, contributing to some of the systemic bias? We're not pulling enough people from the defense side of things um, in order to, to foster these changes as well. So let me admit uh, on the record, I've not studied that issue specifically, 
I don't have specific data I, I on do that. not ask you to be an expert in all things. It is right. okay. <laughs> um, but from my observation and my friends and colleagues who are on the federal bench and the federal judges that I have, that I know and have worked with over the years, more often than not, they come from the prosecutorial side of our profession. Um, I have met very few from the defense side. Um, I'm sure they're out there, um, but my instinctive kind of just empirical knowledge, I think that is a legitimate concern um, based upon the fact that most of them tend to be former prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. I mean, most of them run on their records as well. So it's a little right. bit harder perhaps to run on your defense record than it is right. on the tutorial right. record. It's often used against you, actually. Yes. You, um, you we have a question criminal. from yeah. <laughs> we have a question from Max as well. Um, and it's phrased so some academics have argued that neoliberalism effectively depoliticized the LGBTQ movement in the 90s and early 2000. Does that is there, is there something similar? from neoliberals, so liberals of today, in the way that the racial equity movement's goals are framed. Um, and so is, is there some depolitization? Are we moving this conversation about racial equity out of the realms it should be in? Um, or are we moving it into the realms where maybe we should be having these conversations more? Is it easier to tackle if, let's take a look at education, and see if we can tackle it here. And then let's take a look at housing and see if we can tackle it there. Or is it something we need to be looking at and I would consider the politicization of it more of a top-down like, okay, we're just gonna attack it. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think the conversation that, that, that I've been engaged in and that I am hearing is more, more of a top-down approach, um, trying to point out where it is evident everywhere. Now that can be daunting because none of us are subject matter experts in everything. Um, but I think it's important that we look at systemic racism as a complete overarching system. And what America has to understand is that it was the founding principles of our democracy. Our democracy was not a democracy. It was a democracy for white men. And what the story, of, and, what, and what I love about the story of America and why I love America is that there's been a continued struggle to make America as good as its promise. So we can't just focus on one area because it was through all areas. It was throughout every aspect of our society. It was from not only slavery, but it was also at your death. There were laws that said the slave could not be could not be buried next to the slave master. Whites and blacks could not be even rest in peace together. I mean, how profound is that to think that dead white people and dead black people should be segregated? Are you kidding? <laughs> All right, so we have reached our hour. So I'm going to move okay. us to the lightning round really quickly yes. to, to wrap up. So there are certain questions I want to ask each of our speakers this year. And so I'm going to I'm now, thanks to you, I'm going to call this the lightning round. Um, what do you see as the biggest priorities to help close the racial equity gap? We need transformative, bold public policy that includes investments in black and brown communities, businesses and institutions. We don't need handouts. That's the racial term used to kind of use, we don't wanna help out you know, people of color. I'm talking about investment. Okay. So I appreciate those who are donating millions of dollars to HBCUs. My alma mater, Morehouse College has received a lot of these dollars and others. What we need is an investment in opportunities. So my question to Netflix and Apple and Google, thank you for your donation, but who does your legal work? Who does your accounting work? Who, is your, who are your engineers? 
Are you hiring black firms and black institutions to do your professional services work? It's what John Rogers from Aerial Capital calls anchor institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I wanna see a change in not just the idea of charity and donations, but investment in allowing people of color opportunities to grow wealth and achieve real opportunities to be um, to reach equity. Okay, all right. What gives you hope that progress will be made? The younger generation of white Americans that I saw marching last summer next to black and brown young people. And the fact that I hear and see more white people willing to be engaged in this conversation. Because candidly, too often the struggle of our racial progress is told in the context of what blacks have done to overcome and to achieve. We never talk about the burdens and the problems and the structures white people imposed on black people. And so we even talk about racial justice from a black perspective to make white people comfortable. And I'm sorry, we have to stop doing that. And so I'm glad to see white people willing to be more engaged in these courageous and difficult conversations. They have to continue. And then you have some reading suggestions for us. So what would you recommend we do to educate ourselves? Yes, I've shared with you a list that I hope you will post on your social media sites, but I think all white folks should read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. I read this book this past summer. It's a great read. And for white people, it really explains a lot of uh, the mindset that white people have in this country. Read The Color of Law by Richard Rosenstein, great book about how the law as a structure has been yep. used to oppress and keep black people, black people down. Please read my Morehouse Brothers book, Eddie Glaude, Begin Again. It's a great book about um, where we are in America today. And he puts in conversation himself with James Baldwin. And that's a wonderful book to read. And I also ask you to do this, read all of the speech of I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King Jr. Just don't read the celebration at the end where he talks about, I have a dream. And you know that's the, the celebration in the black church, we call that the hoop. Read the beginning where he talks about America has given black America a bad check. It's insufficient funds. He talks about some from an economic perspective. Talk about and learn about why he was in Memphis in 1968. He was, he was there for economic justice, for garbage workers who were underpaid. And read this book written by Dr. King, A Strength to Love. A wonderful read, one of my favorite books by Dr. King. I strongly urge you to read that as well. And so those are just some of the books. Oh, sorry, there's one more, Shadow to Liberty. I also recommend that by Kenneth Davis. This talks about the slaves who were owned by our, some of, our, some of our, our first presidents and founding fathers. I think, it, I think it's seven of the eight, no, six of the eight presidents, our first eight presidents were slave owners. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that in this book. So please read those, read anything by Tim Wise. Tim Wise is a brilliant writer, um, white gentleman who is really on in tune to the mindset of white America. Um, and so I hope you will read these and others. Um, please share my, my list. Um, and then one last thing, if I could very quickly, I, I hope white people will intentionally and deliberately begin and continue to talk to each other, your cousins, your uncles, your aunts, your family members, go back and pull out your wedding pictures. How diverse was your wedding? If you died tomorrow, how diverse would your funeral audience be in a normal you know, non-pandemic environment? How diverse is your social network? If you had five friends over for dinner, how much diversity would be at that dinner table? If those questions are answered in a way where they're pretty much all white, you've got some work to do. That's fair. Juan, thank you again so much for being with us today and starting off our 2021 programming by challenging us so uh, well. Um, and we know these conversations are never really over and uh, we'll keep doing the work. So thank you very much. It was my honor. Thank you for having me. 
You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.